Okay, well, let's turn together back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, and today we will be starting in verse uh, 5. Today we'll continue Paul's discussion of the uh, wrath of God by looking, ready or not, at the uh, wrath of God today. Really, as we saw last week, Paul doesn't just engage in a, you know, just a a discussion of God's wrath. No, it's an exaltation. It's a celebration of the wrath of God, which, as we saw, you'll find them doing all through the Bible, climaxing in the book of Revelation. We tend to bury it. We hide it in the closet. It's one of the most politically incorrect doctrines of our day, but the Scripture celebrates it. Why? Well, as we read last week on the cover of McGuigan's book, which is so thoroughly biblical, it says, Celebrating the Wrath of God, subtitled Reflections on the Agony and Ecstasy of His Relentless Love, which is the heart of it. Love? You're thinking, how so? Well, it's like the Chinese pastor from the city of Wuhan wrote two days ago, the city that's been shut down by the coronavirus where 200 people have died. A city of 11 million is now a ghost town. Things like this can happen like that. He said this to his fellow American pastors. He said, when disaster strikes, it is but a form of God's love. Thus, my brothers and sisters, I encourage you to be strong in Christ's love. If we more deeply experience death in this pestilence, we may more deeply experience Christ's love and grow ever nearer to God which is his goal through it all, through his severe mercy of his love. This is true on steroids when it's the wrath of God. In many ways, his wrath is all about his love of holiness, which we're not going to get into, but, and it's also about his love of unholy men and women, where he doesn't just let them go you know, to hell in a handbasket. No, he disciplines them. Uh, he disciplines us, as the writer of the Hebrews says, for our good. He's done it again and again and again down through history. And he's been doing it from the very beginning of human history, which is why Paul launches it all in Romans 1.18, if you remember, by saying the wrath of God is being revealed, present, active, participle, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He doesn't just let them go as an indulgent grandfather in the sky. Someone said, you don't need to wait around for the last judgment. It happens every day. It happens every day, so men won't have to endure the last judgment to bring them to their senses. We've seen Paul celebrating God's judgments judgments in history because first, they're so kindly forbearing, Romans 2.4. That is, he's got a very long fuse to the point that the regular cry of his people all through Scripture is, why aren't you doing anything? Why do the wicked prosper? Is God just? He is so kindly forbearing. Second, we can celebrate the wrath of God because he is, it's so eloquently focused Verse 5, we saw that the word that Paul uses here for wrath is apocalypsis. He calls it the revelation, the apocalypsis of the righteous judgment of God, which means the cataclysmic revelation of some important information. That's what apocalypse means. The offensive wrath of God is always an apocalyptic revelation that sends a clear message. It's more focused, you might say, than a smart bomb because it targets the heart of our depravity and lays it bare for all to see and gives us an opportunity to come to him and repent. The offensive wrath of God reveals the unique fist that we're uh, raising to high heaven, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and often brings it down. It's a calling card. 
It's a, like this last resort intervention, a final ultimatum after all other measures have failed that says, you better call on me or I'll be calling on you again. We've seen how eloquent his judgments are biblically and the biblical, biblical accounts of God's wrath and how eloquently focused they've been all through history. But now, as they say, we're going to have to go from preaching to meddling. <laughs> so get ready as we look at the application of all this, not just biblically, not just in history, but today. It's all through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and in many ways it climaxes in Romans 1 and 2, in part because God wants to train his people to see it when it comes and in what you need to do in light of it. It's really important, and we tend to neglect it. It's one reason why they persecuted and murdered the prophets, because they went from preaching to meddling, from history to today. (laughs) Prophets who said things like those Assyrians... Those uh, who, by the way, were the terrorists of their day, those bloodthirsty, marauding Assyrians, they're the rod of God's rebuke on you. And we'll see today that similar things have been happening to us. To begin with, it's not just the lunatic fringe that talks about such things. If you'd like to read more, I'd highly recommend one by none other than the academic imprint of Inner Varsity Press. This is not just for, you know, the uneducated despicables. I won't go any further with that, but uh, it's by historian Stephen Keeler, and it's called God's Judgments, Interpreting History and the Christian Faith. And on the cover is a more, uh, montage of pictures from Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, which we talked about last week, to 9-11. And while I've not used Keeler's material, he shows how what we're doing here today is not just, it's not just hysterical, it is b- biblical. And he unpacks the scripture in a very powerful way. Last week we focused on the foundation for this uh, biblically. I'll give two examples of how this happens today. And once again, we'll keep it at a safe distance with the first one, relatively safe anyway, with something that happened in 1994. One that shows his judgments through nature, which is all through Scripture, as we saw last week. My father sent this to me 25 years ago. It was from the Gazette-Telegraph in Colorado Springs, which of course now went belly up, on January 26, 1994. It's titled, Earthquake Shakes Up Center of Porn Industry. The overwhelming media coverage of last week's California earthquake failed to mention that the quake's epicenter is the hub of America's $3 billion X-rated video industry. There is no doubt that the devastation California's video Sodom Uh, in, in California's video Sodom has been close to apocalyptic. Interesting choice of words. A telephone survey of various Northridge and other Valley Area studios discloses that with no exceptions, every company has suffered some major damage and the major company, VCA Pictures, was totally destroyed. Several industry spokesmen said they believe the biggest effects, at least on the short run, may be psychological. And I would add psychological slash spiritual, as we'll see, as they go on to say. One executive said, with all these aftershocks, everyone is a nervous wreck. Who can get in the mood, for gosh sakes? (laughs) 
and I won't go further with that either. Or maybe this thing has just put the fear of God in them. I'm telling you, it's enough to give you an attack of religion. (laughs) That's what the wrath of his attack does. It's called the relentless love of God. Here's how the the article concluded. According to a, a critic at Adam Film World, a magazine that reviews X videos, quote, a year or so ago, the LA Times published a map of the area that pinpointed the individual porno video companies what they called a map of shame. And here's the conclusion. He said, it was like they hung up a target or something. Are we hanging up targets? Yeah, we do. Oh yes, the offensive wrath of God is an apocalypsis that is always eloquently focused. It's a cataclysmic revelation, a cataclysmic revelation of some important information And it got their attention, and there are many stories that came out of that. Not time to go into it today. But throughout Scripture, we also see his judgment point two by men and nations. And the greatest one that got our attention most recently was, yes, 9-11. And it's not just me who has seen this as the judgment of God over the years. It's been Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter. It's R.C. Sproul. It's Chuck Colson. It's Jerry Falwell and many others who have said the same and for good reason. In many ways, what led up to it was what you might call the Roaring 90s. Sound familiar? Just like the Roaring 20s led up to the Great Depression. In 1999, Forbes magazine devoted its October issue to, what, to whether humanity was converging into what Chardon called the omega point of unity and divinity. It was, everyone was so optimistic. And all the contributors to this forum said yes, except for novelist Mark Helprin, and I recommend his books. He's a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, a fellow of the American Academy in Rome, on and on it goes. He wrote the final article for this Forbes issue on convergence. He titled his, his article, Contrivance. He ended it with Thomas Hardy's poem on the building of the Titanic the shipbuilder's indestructible Titanic and how it ended. It's the poem that says, as the smart ship grew in stature, grace, and hue, in the shadowy, silent distance grew the iceberg too. That happens all through history. Helperin drew this moral, and I quote, throughout history, grandiose expectations are almost always confounded and overturned in tragedy. Who's doing that? And our point today, he said, is that this is the work of an invisible hand. Forbes magazine. Which is our point today. It's Paul's point. This issue of Forbes came out in October of 1999, just a few months before the roaring 90s came to an end. He was like, happy days would never end. But two things brought that era to an end. And the first was the stock market crash of 2000 to 2002. And it was, uh, it was a crash that was then accelerated by what happened halfway through the crash on September 11th of 2001. And leading up to it all throughout the 90s and long before them, we had been provoking as a nation the same type of people that God used to judge Israel in good part, is the decadence of our culture that has so angered the Islamists. 
And so in good part, we brought it on ourselves, which is always the way of God's wrath. It's eminently fair, as we're going to see next week. As Bernard Lewis wrote, the great British-American historian, Muslims tend not to see Western secularism as a rejection of Christianity, but as a form of Christianity. And we're complicit in that. Hollywood's output is seen as Christian material, and we pay for it. And the Christian God is despised in Islam accordingly. It's just what Stephen Keeler wrote in his book on God's judgments, which I showed earlier. Listen, the global impact of America media is undeniable, and these products offend devout Muslims. A holy God is also angered by this all-American enterprise of seducing others, seducing the world for profit through the bloody gore and the sexual trash of our entertainment industry, which has only fueled angry Islamists. And they were the ones that came against us, just as God used Assyria, the terrorists of their day, to discipline Israel. There's much else, but what about the 9-11 event itself. Well, if it was anything, it was eloquently focused. Two quotations should suffice. The first is from the 9-11 issue of Time magazine. This is the first sentence of their lead article. If you want to humble an empire, it makes sense to maim its cathedrals. If you want to humble an empire, it makes sense to maim its cathedrals. If you want to, um, uh, they are symbols of its strength, and when they crumple and burn, it tells us we are not so powerful and we can't be safe. And then it goes on to call the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, the Pentagon, Time Magazine, are sanctuaries, which means temples, of money and power. That is, as I said, is more focused than a smart bomb because he targets the heart of our depravity and the fists that we raise to high heaven. The terrorists targeted two of America's most powerful gods, the almighty dollar and military power, embodied by two of our most prominent temples, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. They, are, they were good things, but good things become idols. Here's what World Magazine said, a highly respected weekly news magazine like Time that many of you subscribe to. It was their 9-11 issue. High on our Western shelf of false deities has been the gods of capitalism, materialism, globalism, and hedonism. They got into trouble for this. Lost many subscribers. And it's hard to think of more apt symbols for such isms than the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Anchored in the financial capital of the world, they capped as, uh, and capped as they were with transmitting towers for, and get this, the major media and entertainment networks that send our filth to the world. Capped with those towers were those two towers. Babel, they concluded, needed just one such tower. New York built two. Yes, he targets the fists that we raise to high heaven and brings them down. And do you know what we've built in their place? We've raised another one. It's called the Freedom Tower, a fist that's far more hardened than any skyscraper that's ever been built. And this one is holding a message of defiance, literally a written message at the very top. The Messianic Jew, Jonathan Kahn, wrote about it. On the tower's highest steel girder is the president's signature, 
along with many others, dignitaries who had gathered to mark the laying of the last girder. But unlike the others, our president wrote something under his signature. This is not just apocryphal. There's a picture of this beam in uh, the Time Magazine issue that I received on March 17, 2014, complete with the signatures. But what he wrote is what the tower stands for. He wrote three sentences. We remember, we rebuild, we come back stronger. That's our response. We remember, we rebuild, we come back stronger. These words reflect Isaiah 9.10, which, believe it or not, was already part of our national response to 9.11. And Obama was simply reflecting what had already been said many times by then. Senator Majority Leader Tom Daschle quoted Isaiah 9:10 on September 12, 2011, day after, when he presented America's response. He said, "America will emerge from this tragedy as we have emerged from all adversity, united and strong. Nothing, nothing can replace the losses. But there is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah that speaks to all of us at times like this." And then he went on to read Isaiah 9:10 which is what Israel said in response to God's judgment, to a devastating strike on their land. They said, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with stronger cedars. Dashiell didn't read the verse that came before, which says this, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria are asserting in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. Then on the third anniversary of 9-11, John Edwards, the U.S. senator running for vice president, gave a speech to the Congressional Black Caucus. This time, the entire speech was built on the foundation of Isaiah 9-10. He said, today, on this day of remembrance and mourning, we have God's word to get us through. Then he read Isaiah 9-10 and went on to talk about how America was just doing that, rebuilding with hewn stone, stronger stone. And of course, he didn't read the verse that came before either. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria are asserting in pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild. This was the theme of Obama's first major speech upon taking office. And then on June 15, 2012, on one of the final steel beams on floor 104, he wrote the words, Barack Obama, we remember, we rebuild, we come back stronger. And what was God's response to the arrogant words of the Israelites as expressed in Isaiah 9.10? Well, the very next verse, Isaiah 9.11, which, by the way, is pretty easy to remember, Isaiah 9.11. It's a verse which, of course, they didn't read either publicly, probably didn't even know about it. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. That's Isaiah 9.11. The Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. He's saying to them, call on me or I'm going to have to call on you again. And it wasn't just back then. Indeed, as our tower grew, there were icebergs rising all around us too. And there are to this day, just like when the smart ship grew in stature, grace, and hue, In the shadowy, silent distance grew the iceberg too. But we've proclaimed we will rebuild. The Port Authority said that their goal through that building, the Freedom Tower, was to show New York City's indomitable spirit, a defiant city that can transfigure itself from the ashes. And in so doing, it looks like anyway, we've raised up another fist. And is it hardened or what? Literally. 
They made it so hard that it could easily be argued that the one world tower uh, that replaced the World Trade Center is a monument to how hardened we've become. And how hard is that? Well, Time Magazine wrote this in the issue after they finished it. The concrete perimeter of one world tower is five and a half feet thick. Is concrete that can withstand the force of 14,000 pounds per square inch, twice as much as the Hoover Dam. It's built on bomb-resistant uh, 20-story base, a virtual concrete bunker. It's held aloft by 805 tons of steel that were, proclaimed, that were produced at a Luxembourg plant known for creating the heaviest I-beams in the world, 30- and 50-foot slabs of steel. And once they reached the U.S., they strengthened them with steel plates that increased their weight to 70 tons each. The first 180 feet, six feet are windowless. They clad the tower with two-inch glass, twice the thickness of the normal skyscraper. And once it was completed, the New York Times architectural critic said it has an opaque, shellacked, monomaniacal feel. Monomaniacal means an obsessive zeal for one thing. What's it called? The Freedom Tower. What is that single thing? It's about freedom. Another architect critic said, use the same word, it's a monomaniacal declaration of our independence, of our freedom to do as we please. In good part, the Freedom Tower celebrates a lawless freedom. Not that all freedom is bad, but it's become a lawless freedom. A lawlessness that God knows has gotten a lot worse since 9-11. In good part, the Freedom Tower is a tribute to our lawless character, a fist that's harder than ever, one that lifts a verse, literally, to high heaven, signed by our president, a verse that's a curse on our nation. And our response to God's wake-up call, to his shot across the bow, to the taking down of our sanctuaries of money and power. Our answer was to flaunt our money and to flex our power like never before, strutting around with more money and more power than ever before in our history, and to top it off by raising a $3.9 billion fist to high heaven that trumpets our freedom to continue to do as we please. Time's commemorative issue summed it up like this. One World Trade Center is a statement of hope and defiance. They went on to say this, although the nation now remains in per, on perpetual terrorism alert, the tower's completion signals that America's brawny, soaring ambition remains intact. This in spite of, in the face of the eloquence of God's judgment. But you know, it's not just that. You have to put a comma after that, not a period, because something else was going on at the same time. In good part, because God left a calling card so there would be no mistaken about his relentless love. There'd be no mistaken what he was after. A calling card that proved that uh, indeed in wrath he remembers mercy, as we saw last week. It's a formation of beams that they found upright, as many of you know, among the debris with the perfect proportions of the Christian cross. And the workers, the, uh, the workers with access to the site immediately started to use the cross as a shrine. They left messages on it and, and prayed in front of it. The Huffington Post write, wrote, it quickly became a symbol of hope for the men and women coping with the horror of that day. Thousands upon thousands who had never done this before looked to the cross. 
I'd call that a pre-evangelistic tool. It says, the sins that brought all this on you can be covered. Your national sins and individual sins, if you just call on me, come to me. When it got in the way of the cleanup, the workers received expedited approval from the city to erect it as it is there on another side and to install it on a pedestal where it continued as a shrine and tourist attraction, one that drew thousands. One minister said that when a family of a man who died in the attacks came to the cross and left some personal effects there, he said, and he had been ministering to them, they were huddled around together, he said, it was as if the cross took in our grief and loss. I never felt Jesus more. Eventually it was moved again to a temporary place during the construction of the transportation hub. It was moved to St. Peter's Church, which faces the World Trade Center. And then they moved it a final time. They lowered it into the underground World Trade Center Museum, where the 17-foot Ground Zero Cross stands to this day as a witness to the millions who have visited there. As it was to the millions that saw it when it was above ground. A cross that continues to say, you need to call on me, you need to come to me before you destroy yourself with your money and your power and your entertainment culture. And it's got to start with us. It's not just from the museum that it continues to speak. A documentary film called The Cross and the Towers was released in 2006. It's won a number of national and international awards, including the Audience Choice Award at the Palm Beach International Festival, Best Film at the Gloria Film Festival, The Crystal Heart at the Heartland Film Festival, and it was a finalist at, uh, at the USA Film Festival. And through this film, and through this museum, and through more than I have time to tell, through more than we will ever know, this revelation, the word of the cross, continues to go out thanks, uh, thanks to the cataclysm. It's a symbol of hope, as the Huffington Post called it, for all who will come. As a symbol of hope for the men and women coping with the horror of that day, it left an indelible impression you can be sure that God is building on. Because after all else has failed, the wrath of God is not only kindly forbearing, not only does he have a long fuse, but eloquently focused, not only biblically or in history, but today. It's a revelation of relentless love that says, come unto me. You need to call on me because the icebergs continue to grow all around you. We need to repent. And it's got to start with us. And I do not believe it's coincidental that this of all days, in this of all passages, we come to the cross through our communion service. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you.
that not only must it start with us in so many ways, it already has started with us as a church, even as it has with a remnant of churches and Christians across the nation. Thank you that in your relentless love, you allowed us to be broken as a body and then brought us to our knees for 40 days. Thank you that your work continues through these first chapters in Romans and it continues each month as we come to the cross. So important is it. Help us now not to point the finger at them but to help lead the nation as we confess our sins to be broken because we broke him which is the worst sin of all. Thank you that just like you did with that grieving family here at the cross, you can take our grief and our loss by the power of your spirit that brings these truths home to our hearts. Do that now. For surely our griefs you bore and our sorrows you carried. By your spirit, Lord, help us now to make live contact with your relentless love as we confess the sins that brought all this on and then take the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed so that we can go from here rejoicing and in peace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.